Good evening, everybody. Glad to have you out for our Sunday evening service. We're going to be going through the book of Romans, so you can open up to Romans chapter 5 so long. And I will try not to shake the table too much so that the camera stays a little bit steady. I have a few announcements for you uh, as we begin. Please forgive me this morning. I failed to mention that we have a student event planned for live stream this coming Friday at 6 p.m. Um, I assume that the students already know about this. I know they've been contacted, but uh, just want to remind everybody with this opportunity, 6 o'clock Friday night, uh, I've asked Michael Hills to be given his testimony, so I'm looking forward to hearing that myself. Also, uh, I have been in putting a code, an attendance code, into all of our Bible school lessons and then asking you to send that code to the church phone uh, via WhatsApp or through email. Let me point out that that's only for the degree students, right? We need to keep track of their attendance because that factors into their grade at the end. Uh, so we need to somehow track and make sure that they have uh, listened to the lessons. And that code is for them. So if, if you are um, just tuning in to learn and you have no intention of writing the exams or getting the degree, then you can just ignore that part where I give a code. So just to whoever that might apply, please be sure if you're a degree student though, please be sure to send those codes through to Janae. Also, we have an exam for the book of Romans and I'll be giving you the notes at the end of class. I hope I remember. I'm going to set it nearby so I, to try to remind myself to give you the notes for that. The next Sunday evening class that we have, we, we don't have class next week. We are using the same schedule that was last sent out to all the students. Uh, even with this lockdown, we're not changing um, the, the scheduling too much. I'm going to explain one small change. but. We had planned to take next Sunday evening off. That is still the plan. And then the following Sunday, we will resume classes. So here's how this exam is, is going to work. I am not sure if what will happen with the lockdown situation. That following Sunday will be the 19th. And if the lockdown, if it goes according to plan, as far as I know, the, lo the lockdown should be over by then, we could write the exam at the church. However, if we're still on lockdown, we might have to make different plans. So please be ready at least by the 19th to write this exam. But this is a, a, a different situation. So here's what I'd like to do. I am going to provide the notes. I'll read them tonight. And then I will post this exam on Google Drive. And I believe, I'm, I'm sure it won't be an issue to have Janae post it in the PBI WhatsApp group as well. But I want you guys to have access to the actual test so that you can begin to study. If you would like to write the test before the 19th, I am going to allow you to do that the way that our correspondence students write their exams. And that is we use an honesty-based system where you sit down, closed book, just you and the test paper, and you give yourself 10 minutes and that's where the honesty comes in. I'm not going to be there to see 
if your book is closed, your Bible's closed, and uh, I'm not going to be there to count the time. So I will trust that you will follow those rules. So as soon as I give the notes tonight, if you want to write the exam first thing in the morning, feel free to do that. You can email it to the church uh, email account, and then we will go forward with grading it um, from there. If you would like to wait, though, until the 19th, then you can feel free to do that as well. You have all that time uh, to study. You have two weeks to study for this exam. All right, also, let me announce a small change in our schedule. We are scheduled to have class next, or this coming Wednesday, rather. Guys, if you don't mind, I'm going to take advantage of this lockdown time to give my voice a little bit of a break. Teaching for two hours straight, I can do it, but it's, it's a struggle sometimes, and it does hurt afterwards. What I'd like to do, and because we're all stuck at home, if, if, if it's all right, I'm going to have class. I'm going to teach on Tuesday night and on Wednesday night, but only one hour per night. So it's the same class load, but we're going to split it up. I'll teach Tuesday at 6 o'clock, Wednesday at 6 o'clock. Tuesday we'll have Matthew, Wednesday we'll have Galatians. And then the week after that as well, we will split it up. So I, I just want to, this is the best I can do to announce it for now. We will remind you through WhatsApp, but this Tuesday we'll be live streaming the class and then the Wednesday as well. And I appreciate you folks understanding because I'm just, uh, somebody suggested that to me during the week and it makes perfect sense. If I can give my voice a chance to recuperate just a little bit more, that would be a big help. All right, I think that's all for announcements. Take your Bibles, come to Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. And last time I gave you the outline, the two-part outline for the chapter, hope versus hard times, verses 1 to 11. And then verses 12 to 21, we have a comparison. That's a contrast correlation between Adam and Christ. So I have an outline of hope versus hard times. And part two, Adam versus Christ. And that's verses 12 to 21. And last week, we, we just started into Romans 5. In verse 1, let's just begin to read there. And before we do that, even, let's, uh, if you would, bow your heads with me. Let's pray and ask God for help. Father, please help us tonight. Please guide us as we look through the Scripture once again. It is a privilege. It's an honor to get to do this. Lord, thank you for these faithful students who make time in their schedules to sit down and listen and learn. And I pray you continue to mold them, Lord. And I thank you for the privilege of getting to know you and your word. Thank you, Lord. This this, uh, system of grace, the Holy Spirit working within us, the way you treat us as your children, we don't deserve it, but we do appreciate it. Please now guide us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Romans 5 and verse 1. Romans 5 and verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about, I gave special attention to that phrase, peace with God, because we have been made right in God's sight. We have a righteous standing with God. That allows us to be reconciled. We're no longer enemies. We have peace with God. 
verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So now Paul's addressing our standing as Christians. I mentioned this last Wednesday in, in Galatians class. In Galatians 5 verse 25, it's a great verse. I think the best verse that directly shows the difference between standing and state. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So our standing is we are alive because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That will never change. Your standing never changes. Your state, that can be up and down. That's a condition. And that can change from day to day, from hour to hour. So because we're alive in the Spirit, now we should walk in the Spirit. Our standing should affect our state. Another way to say it is, you are saved. See, you are saved, standing. That's how it is. Now act like it, state. In this case, he says, we are, because of Christ, we have access into this wonderful system wherein God has mercy on us and He has put us into this predestinated plan. Right? God made a plan before the foundation of the world that anybody who receives Christ God will work in that person's heart and conform them little by little to be more like His Son until one day when the rapture takes place, this process is complete and you get a brand new body, a glorified body. So God is fixing us to be like His Son from the inside out. How do we have access to such a wonderful system, a wonderful plan and promise? It's because of what Christ made available to us. And we enter that by exercising faith in what Christ has done. So he says, by whom also we have uh, access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So our standing is that of grace. That's the system. Now, walk in grace. What do I mean by that? What's the difference? The system that operates in our lives, the, the one that we're living under, is grace. We'll talk more about that in Romans 6. But now walking in grace, what would that entail? That, that implies, that entails uh, taking advantage of and using the grace, the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge, everything that God has put in your life, actually putting it to use. That would be walking in grace. Now in verse 2 at the end of it, he says, Wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we are looking forward to our hope. That's our expectation. We rejoice in that hope. We are looking forward to one day standing in the glory of God, literally basking in His glow, standing in His presence, and at that point we will have glorified bodies. We look forward to that day. I don't know about you guys, but especially these last few weeks, my heart has been beating a little faster. It gets excited every time it thinks about how close that day might be that Jesus comes to fetch us. Right? That trumpet could sound at any moment. Man, that's an exciting thought. Can you imagine if that happened tonight? Leaving this world behind. We rejoice in that hope. I hope you do. I, it, certainly, it certainly thrills my soul the more I think about it. Now verse 3 Watch how Paul gives us such a great balance. He, 
He says, you know, we're rejoicing in something that's still going to happen in the future. Verse 3, and not only so. When somebody gets saved, yes, it's wonderful to think, well, one day I'll be in heaven with God. But man, there's so much more to salvation. There's so much more to it. We can rejoice not just when we get to heaven or thinking about heaven, but even in the difficult times, we also have a reason to rejoice. And you'll see it now in verse 3. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Thank God for the wonderful plan, the new body we're going to get, all of that. But there's, there's another thing that God is going to do even now, using the tribulations of our life. And it's all part of God's plan to use these troubles of life to conform us to the image of His Son. Now let me first say this. Guys, it doesn't matter what kind of trouble it is. God can use it. God can use it to further your growth in the Lord, no matter what it is. Now, there's three kinds of troubles that I, I think this pretty much captures all trouble. There is self-induced trouble. Tribulations, troubles, right? There's self-induced. That is, you messed up. You made a mistake. Now, I think we're very acquainted with that, right? All of us. Then there's a second kind of trouble. God-induced. This is when God allows or even brings a, a troublesome time or situation in your life. And God is, has designed that thing as a test or a trial period. I think of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness, right? That is a God-induced um, trial in, in his life. And I think that hap I know it happens in our lives as well from time to time. So God can obviously use that. But then there's a third type of trouble. So there's self-induced, God-induced, life-induced. Life-induced. What I mean by that is sometimes it's just how life happens, right? It's you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Bible does support the idea of things happening by accident. It's not that God planned it out. It's not that you messed up. It's just that we live in a fallen world. And because of that, things do not always work out fairly. So it can be self-induced, God-induced, life-induced. Regardless of where the problem comes from, God can use it, right? All things can work together for good to them that love God. Now here's the process. Verse 3, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So the problem starts. Step 2, you begin to patiently wait for this problem to get fixed. Now I'm going to speak in general terms because God only knows how many problems there are that uh, we've all experienced and God has used to build us in the faith. Whatever the case is, the problem comes, and then we patiently wait. And during that patiently waiting period, by the way, you should be prayerfully listening to God and saying, God, what would you like for me to learn from this? You can also ask Him, did I mess up? Is this something that you're doing in my life? You can ask all those questions. But the trouble leads to step two, patiently waiting to see how this is going to be resolved 
And the whole time you're learning and speaking with God and communing with Him, these troubles should bring you closer to Him. Step three, experience. Verse four, and patience, experience. Problems lead to patience. Patience, after it's done its work. James chapter one, yes? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that, knowing that patience can have, let patience rather, have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So patience has this job to do. Let patience have her perfect work. Let her finish the job. And when it's done, you can look back on how God has fixed that problem and you can, you can remember all the lessons he taught you, all the conversations you had with him. And they say hindsight is twenty twenty. You can see it clear once it's in the past. Then you have this experience. You know, when I get in trouble, it's just a matter of time. I just have to be patient. God will get me through this. I am going through the valley of the shadow of death. Through it. Right? David said, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. So I'm going through this with the Lord. I know I'm going to make it through this. You get to the end of it, the experience part. You say, God, I've learned so much through this. I, I don't know about you, but I, I can amen that. I have seen this process work over and over again. What, what is the final, I should say, uh, what, does this, what does this produce? That's the best way to say it. Problems, patience, experience, and that gives me hope. That gives all th- those other three points brings forth hope. So it's almost, if I can make it this equation, tribulation plus patience plus experience equals hope. The more I add on the front end of that equation, the more trouble, the more patience, the more experience, the more hope. The more, the next time trouble starts, I will be able to look back and all the other experiences and I can deal with the next problem even better. I can wait more patiently. I can feel more joy as I go through that next valley because God has brought me through so many valleys before. So verse 4 says, Patience, experience, and experience hope. Verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed. So this stacks, right? The effects of this stacks. And hope maketh not ashamed. So my expectation... I am not going to be ashamed at the end of this process as if God will let me down. I will never be disappointed with what the Lord does with that situation in my life because I know Romans 8.28 is true. I'm, I'm convinced after 20 plus years of doing this, I'm convinced with all my heart that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to His purpose. I, it might be difficult to remember that when you're going through something in the darkest part of that valley. But you need to remember that God has never failed you. And hope makes not ashamed. You're never going to be disappointed that you waited on God. Look at the end of verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Let's, let's make sure we let that sink in. Let that sink in. When, when the trouble starts, we begin to pray and say, God, please fix the problem where you, 
And I understand that. I'm not, I'm not condemning anyone for praying that way. Shouldn't we also pray, God, fix me? Shouldn't we say, God, maybe the problem is not that external thing. Maybe the problem is me. When you go through the trouble, listen, this gives God an opportunity to wrap His loving arms around you and show you just how much He cares and show you just how much He's able to do. And sometimes, right, when you're hurting the most, God squeezes the tightest and pulls you closer than you've ever been and and pours on you such comfort and peace and love almost to the point where you say, God, thank you for the problem. I never would have realized how much you loved me and how powerful and awesome you were if it weren't for that problem. And we end up rejoicing in tribulations also. Why? Because He immediately fixes our problems and prospers us in every way? No, because we get to feel more of that love. We get to recognize just how much He loves us. Now, there's a temptation that when the problems start, and I think all of us, because all flesh is grass, sorry for the shaking, I think we all struggle with this to a certain extent. The problems start and we say, man, that's it. I'm finished. God's finished with me. God can never use me. God God has forsaken me. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we, we allow our flesh to convince us that we're not under grace, that we're somehow back under the law and we're just going to get, we're going to just get thumped by God and God's going to allow the world to overcome us. And we start to really get down on ourselves. You think, why would God love somebody like me? God, especially when it's self-induced, especially then, you say, God, I did it again. I, it's the same thing. You keep getting me out of that, and I, I'm so sorry, God. I messed up again, and then our flesh would tell us, that's it, God's finished with you. I would even think the devil might whisper that in your ear. And I think that's why Paul gave us the next verse. Verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Why would God be so interested in such a depraved, rotten sinner as myself? Why would, right now, right now, why would I think that if I make another mistake or if any sort of problem starts, why would I think that God will continually help me? I don't deserve that. I haven't earned that. Exactly. That's why we call it the system of grace. We are standing in grace. So even though we may not be worthy of God's attention, His help, His love, His Holy Spirit, shedding abroad in our heart, filling our hearts with that love, even though we don't deserve it, even though we constantly fall, Paul says this is is how God operates with grace. This is where your Christian journey started. It started by God reaching out to an unworthy sinner when you were without strength. You couldn't fix the problem yourself. You were ungodly. You were making the mistakes. You were the problem. And God reached out to you. So that's where it started. When you begin to get pessimistic about what's going on, you think, man, this is never going to come right. Don't forget that when you were lost in sin... 
that is when God reached down and offered you free salvation through His Son. And when you accepted Christ, every sin was washed away. You were brought into the Father's house and every angel in heaven was rejoicing. And the Father said, it is meet that we should make merry. It's not that we deserve it. It's grace. Verse 7, he further illustrates, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. So Paul is he's, he's explaining what you would expect to be done for a righteous or a good man. Right? If somebody's righteous or good, you, you would, it wouldn't shock you to see somebody else going out of their way to do something great, to, to, to perform some great act of hero, heroism to protect that righteous or good man. It makes sense to us. We think he deserves it. When I think of a mother, right, uh, rescuing her child or a soldier defending his nation, and I don't mean to take away from mothers and soldiers and anything like that, they're, what they're doing, a mother that rescues her child, a soldier defending his nation, these are still acts of bravery by all means. But it is part of what I think would fall under natural affection. What's not natural, yeah, is to love your enemy that much. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That, if you were with us this morning for the sermon... That is going the extra mile. When you take somebody who's not righteous, who's not good, ungodly, weak, sinful, and go so far out of your way to save them. Look at verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God said, come here. I want to show you just how much I love you. I want to show the world just how much love I have to offer to people. How did God manifest how deep His love goes? Not by giving it to the people that deserved it, but by giving it to people that didn't. Anybody can love their friends, right? That's what we learned this morning in Matthew 5. Jesus said, if you love, love and salute your brethren, don't even the publicans do that? That wouldn't be anything outstanding. But to love your enemies so much that you would lay down your life for them, reaching out to them, that, that kind of love, that's not natural. That is so supernatural. So God, when He wanted to prove His love toward us, He did it on our worst day, not on our best. And that pattern continues on throughout your Christian life. Say, I had a bad day, I've made a mistake, I failed again. And God says, yeah, I know. But you're in my family now. You're under this system of grace where I can use even your mistakes. You can learn from this. Yes, yes, we need to, we need to pick ourselves up, repent, dust ourselves off and say, God, I'm sorry. We do have some responsibility in this. You don't want to be a waste of grace. But oh man, the depth of His mercy he is rich in mercy. So, and I love verse 9. The way verse 9 works in this. Much more than. I love that. I, I can see Paul. I have this picture in my mind of Paul sitting down to write Romans. 
and he gets to chapter, what we know as chapter 5, and he's writing it down. And he says, man, when I was the worst of sinners, I was a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer. I was injurious. I, Oh, I was a horrible guy. And, and even in that condition, God still sent his son to die for me. And, and he's getting excited about it. And then he says, and if that wasn't enough, it gets even better. That's, that's how I would say verse 9. Much more than. We would say, it gets even better. Which is, it's hard to believe it could get better, but it does. Much more than being now justified by His blood. Okay? We shall be saved from wrath through Him. God's love did not stop at the cross. When God washed you in His blood, that made you right in His sight. Yeah? That's justification. Declaring you righteous. That is, you're forgiven, redeemed. It's all there. And God says, you're right in my sight now. God could have just said, okay, that's all I'm going to do for you. But He didn't. It got better. God said, tell you what, I'm going to make a plan that prevents you from experiencing the wrath that will one day be poured out on the earth, on, on the people of the earth. Now, you can understand that wrath as a very general, uh, eternal destruction type of idea. And, and it's true, we have been saved from that eternal wrath of being in the lake of fire. So that's true, but I would see that somehow connected to uh, the first part of being justified in His blood or by His blood. I, I rather, when I see this saved from wrath, I take this as more of a prophetic thing that we are saved from that time of tribulation because we are going to experience a rapture or resurrection, if you'd like to say it that way. Rapture, I would say, would apply more for people who are alive and remain. Resurrection for those that are dead in Christ. But that event, that rapture, is going to happen before the period of that, that we call the tribulation, which culminates at the end of those seven years of tribulation in the wrath of God being poured out at the Battle of Armageddon and the whole world then experiences that wrath. Now the reason I take it that way is in verse 10, I believe you're going to see Paul mentioning that resurrection. He says in verse 10, For if, forgive me, before we go on, can I just mention what's, because Paul said it gets even better. He, he didn't only forgive us. He also made a plan to spend eternity with us in a glorified body. And he's made this plan so that we don't go through that time of tribulation and meet the wrath of God at the second coming. We, God not only had a plan for fixing our past and our present, but he's fixed our future. That's the part that gets even better. So I, I hope that's clear. Now verse 10. For if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Right? There's the justification in His blood. That's reconciled, we, peace with God. He says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, see it gets even better, being reconciled, because that's done, we shall be saved by His life. Now what does that mean, saved by His life? Because Jesus rose from the dead in a glorified body, I can expect the same type of resurrection. 
Now look at this with me. Look at Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 11. Romans 8, verse 11. He says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So I'm looking, because He rose from the dead, and because He has life, I can look forward to a physical resurrection with a glorified body, just like he had when he rose from the dead. The same spirit that raised him is going to raise me. Look, look at it again in Romans 8, verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. We don't have time to get into it now. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body, so when it says we shall be saved, I have been saved, past tense, from the punishment of hell. That is a fixed thing because I'm justified. So that's past tense. Future tense, I shall be saved, that has to do with this body getting fixed. Because right now, I still have the sinful nature running through my, in my body. When does this body get fixed? Not until that day of the rapture. So verse 24, we are, uh, 824, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? In other words, you're looking forward to this. If, if it's already happening, it's right in front of you. But what we're waiting for or expecting to happen is the redemption of our body. So come back to Romans chapter 5. So what Paul has done is he's taken verse 9 and he's shown the two steps. Salvation is great because we're justified, but it gets even better because he has a plan for the future. And then he repeats that same point and puts the emphasis on it by saying we have been reconciled and because of that, because we got in on this plan, now we get access to all the benefits of this plan. That is, we're going to avoid that wrath and we're going to... Uh, end up in the resurrection with that glorified body. Now, verse 11. Verse 11. He says, and not only so, it gets even better. <laughs> I love how Paul, it just sounds like he's so excited about this topic. I hope you are. I hope this is the kind of thing that thrills your soul to, to dwell on and meditate on this wonderful plan that God is working in your life. And not only so, verse 11, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So he says, we're not only looking forward to that glorified body. We're not only looking forward to living with God in eternity forever. It's not a matter of rejoicing in, in, the, in the hope of the glory of God, future, and that's all I have. I can, it says at the end of verse 11, by whom we have now received the atonement. I can start rejoicing now. I can start rejoicing now. I don't have to wait till I get to heaven. So it's not like I have to go through life bitter and angry and go, oh, one day I'll finally be in heaven and it'll all be fine. I can even joy now. As we mentioned earlier, tribulation works to our advantage. 
and I know that I've been accepted in the Beloved because of what Jesus did on the cross. I have that atonement. I, I'd like to just take a second and make this clear. Guys, when we talk about eternal life, a lot of people when they say eternal life, they think of a time in the future when they're in heaven or in the kingdom and, and time is no more, they're in eternity, and they think that is when eternal life starts. You know, after this physical life is done, then you get to heaven. Now you're in an eternal state or an eternal place. Now that's eternal life. Guys, eternal life is not something we're waiting on. If you're saved, you have eternal life right now. Right now. I think what happens is, because these two things go together, eternal life and immortality, they, they do go together, but they're not the same thing. Immortality is you cannot die. I do not have immortality. I am still able to die. I'm still mortal. Yet, right now, I have eternal life. Now, take your Bible. Look at John chapter 17. I'd like to show you a verse about eternal life. You see, when you receive Jesus Christ, what you received, what, among other things, among many things, you received real, true life. And that true life, that real life, that's eternal life. God is the life source. Yes, He is life. If you want to say it like that. This is how Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you received Jesus, you received real life. Do you remember in, in the book of John and other places, Jesus said, Moses didn't give you that bread from heaven. He says, but I am the true bread that God has sent from heaven. The, the true bread. You see, everything we look at, everything we touch, taste, all this stuff is temporary. I, I mean, it looks real. Yeah. The food I ate today seemed real. This, this is reality, but I'm afraid that we forget sometimes that there's something more permanent. Paul said it like this, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have eternal life. This is the real life that God intended us to have. This mortal life of just existing on earth, breathing, eating, sleeping, working, it's part of being mortal. But guys, that's not all there is to life. That's just existing. That's why so many people get fed up and they, they, they hate life because they think that just going through that cycle of wake up, feed, work, go back to bed, wake up, feed, go, that's not life. That's existing. That's, that's a fallen life. Real life. Look at John 17, 3. Jesus said, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life starts the moment you begin a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. 1 John 5.12 He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 
We have eternal life right now. That's a reason to start rejoicing. Now come back to Romans 5 and verse 12. Romans 5 and verse 12. Paul says, now we, as of verse 12, we're moving into a, uh, the second point in the outline for this chapter. Yeah. So now we're going to begin to see a contrast between Adam and Christ. But Paul's going to lead into this with a little bit of information. Wherefore, verse 12, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's a lot in verse 12. A lot. So let me, let me try to cover it as succinctly as I can. First, we need to understand this. There's a difference between sin and sin. Yeah, there's a difference. You can use that word two different ways. I've said it like this many times. We sin, we, we commit sin because of sin. That is the sinful nature. So when you read here, as by one man sin entered into the world, he's referring to the sinful nature. What's the sinful nature? Sometimes we call that the human nature, the fallen nature, depraved nature, depravity. The Adamic nature, you can refer to it in all those ways. The flesh, the old man, there's lots of ways of referring to, to sin. Right? That sinful nature, it entered into the world through Adam. Now we understand that Eve was involved. We, we understand that there, you had to have two people there to create the human race. We get that. But Adam's willing choice to fall and then pass that seed on down you know, what became the rest of humanity... Paul is just what a lot of ancient authors used to do. He just refers to the man who was responsible and so forth. But as by one man, sin entered into the world. So the sinful nature. That sinful nature is an inclination to sin. I'm, I'm purposely leaning this way. Yeah? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, God made man upright. God made us. He, he created us in His image. Yeah, I say us. He created Adam and Eve in His image. That is righteous and true holy, true holiness, perfectly upright. And then when man sinned, he got bent to backsliding. He got inclined to sin. So now every human being that's born comes into this world with this inclination towards sin. Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, let me first point out the, the greater scope of the chapter. Paul is going to compare how through Adam, sin and death came, but through Jesus, righteousness and life came. Right? That's the ultimate goal here. But he's laying some groundwork, and we can't ignore what he says in verse 12. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we, because of the sinful nature, we commit a sin, which turns into multiple sins, obviously, the more you do it. Why does everybody die? Because everybody sins, right? But wait a second. What about babies? What about people that do not have control of their mental capacities? What about people, and when we talk about those categories, we're talking about people that do not make a willing decision to rebel against God. It says in the verse, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. 
Now, we are all mortal, we're capable of dying because of the sinful nature that exists within us. Sure. But this verse says all have sinned. That means you've actively used the sinful nature. That inclination towards sin, you went ahead and followed it and, 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 and obeyed the sinful nature. But what about children? What about little kids that, that don't know any better? Why does death touch them? Why can they still die even though they haven't made a decision? Let, let me show you a verse. Get Psalm 58. Psalm 58. Now this might sound a bit strange. Stick with me on this. Psalm 58. For that all have sinned. We, we can understand that statement as Paul making just a general statement, right? Saying that uh, mankind, like in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's just making a general statement. He's not referring to every particular situation. And if you understand it that way, I, I don't think I'd have a problem with you approaching Romans 5 verse 12 like that. But let me show you something strange. Psalm 58 verse 3. Psalm 58 verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. That means they've gone astray. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Now you might say, well, that's just a figure of speech, you know. David just trying to make a point that the wicked have been lying since day one. And I don't know. You know, I, I love babies. But they lie. Babies lie. <laughs> and um, I hope I have one or two moms that will agree with me on this. Sometimes that child will cry and there's nothing wrong. <laughs> now, if there's something wrong and, you, and the child cries, that makes sense. I'm good with that. No problems. But sometimes they're crying because they're just selfish. They want attention. And they're acting as if something is wrong when there's really nothing wrong. They're lying. Now, this leads to the next question, or the next uh, circumstance that we'd have to deal with. Okay, let's say that that child is lying. Now, they are not actively rebelling. They are just working with the sinful nature that's in them. That just They're being human. Is God going to send them to hell for that? They have a sinful nature. That's part of being one of Adam's descendants. And that sinful nature evidently is working and producing a sinful act. So what is the sinful act? They lied, even as a little baby. But, come back to Romans 5, verse 13. You can't miss this part now. Romans 5, 13. For until the law, until the written law came into the world, sin was in the world. How can that be? Sin is the transgression of the law. Yes, it is. But even though there wasn't a written law, they had the moral law of their heart, and people were transgressing against that for a couple thousand years, or, or, or 3,000 years before the law was written down. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So for that child or somebody not in control of their mental capacities, God does not impute, He doesn't charge that person, that innocent person, with a crime, even though they've committed one. I, I've used this illustration before. I hope this will make sense. Um, 
when my first, when our youngest, our oldest, I'm sorry, was very young, Megan, when she was very young, we were in ShopRite in Malawi and she reaches out and grabs a candy bar, right? Off the shelf. And we don't realize that she's done it. And out she walks with it and she has this candy bar. Now she's stolen the candy bar, but she was, she was too young. She doesn't realize that it's stealing. She's just hungry. Yeah. Do you think that the manager, now we, we returned it if memory serves <laughs> I, or paid for it, one or the other, but do you think that if the manager were to come out and find Megan holding that candy bar that he would call the police or, you know, take some further action? Of course not, because he knows, yes, this is technically a crime, but I'm not going to impute or charge this little person with a crime. They didn't know any better, right? So a child can still die because the sinful, a baby can, can die because the sinful nature is in there. That makes us mortal. That's what makes death possible. The sting of death, right, is sin. So that sinful nature is what makes it possible. But God is not going to charge sin to that little one's soul or to that, in, in the case of somebody mentally retarded, God's not going to hold that against them. Sin is not imputed where there is no law, no law at all, no written law. No, they didn't understand the moral law. God doesn't charge them. So I hope that makes sense. Now, verse 12, I want to refer to one more thing from that verse before we move on. Verse 12 gives us the order for sin and death. It says, sin entered and death by sin. Now, this speaks loudly against the idea of evolution, right? And for anyone that holds the position of, of what is called theistic evolution, to say that there is a God and, and God is using the natural processes of evolution to bring forth you know, the human race and all of that, I, I think there's going to be a problem with this verse because according to the teaching of evolution, you have a lot of death going on for hundreds of thousands of years before sin ever shows up. But biblically, sin comes first and then death. Right? Now, I've heard Christian apologists explain their way around this because they're trying to make the teaching of, forgive me if the term doesn't suit you, but macroevolution. They're, they're trying to take Darwinian evolution and, and make it work with biblical Christianity. So the way around this is to say, well, this verse is not talking about animal, or it's not talking about um, uh, animal death, right? It's talking about human death. So human death entered in because of sin. So this way you can say, yes, there were millions and millions and millions of, of animals that died and other organisms that died, but then when when these organisms have evolved into a man, then man sinned, then man died after that. that I think we're going to see, though. We're not going to spend a long time talking about that now. But in Romans chapter 8, we're going to see that Paul says, nature was put under, in, into subjection, and it feels the punishment of mankind's mistakes. So man sinned, then nature went crazy. So to say, now again, according to evolution, nature was 
was dying and there were disasters and all this and then finally man showed up and sits. So it's, I just don't see any way to make the, the biblical narrative match up with what science tells us about this macro long-term evolution. But we'll save that. We'll talk more about that maybe in chapter 8. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So he's just making that point clear that God does take into account people that can't understand it. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, Moses, he mentions that because that's when the law came. So death reigned. People were under, bondage, under the bondage of sin, and people were dying one after the other, even without access to the written law, because they did have access to that moral law in their heart, and people were sinning. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. A couple ways I think we might understand this. Even over them that had not sinned, Adam willingly, purposely sinned. If you look at this from the, if you're having the conversation about babies and mentally retarded people, then you would say those people did not willingly and knowingly sin, yet they still died. And, and, and that would fit the verse because death is still reigning because the sinful nature is still there. So we could carry that conversation into verse 14. However, I think there's another way to understand what Paul's saying. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Adam and Eve, we have to put her in this category as well, they both sinned differently than, than we do. And, and here's what I mean by that. They didn't have a sinful nature when they first sinned. All of us, when we come into the world, we are born with that. We are born, as I mentioned earlier, bent the wrong way, inclined to sin. That is the sinful nature. Adam and Eve were made upright. They had a free will. They were able to exercise that. They were deceived. Well, let's say Eve was deceived. Forgive me. Adam was not deceived. He did it purposely. And this is where the picture gets very rich. Adam did it out of love for his bride, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So at the end of verse 14, it says, talking about Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come? So there are many ways that Adam is a picture of Christ. Now, there are some positive ways in which Adam and Christ match. And one of those I just mentioned, Adam loved Eve enough to take on sin and die along with her. Adam or Jesus loved us enough to take sin, become sin, and to die for us. So there is, there's that positive correlation. But we're also going to see that in many ways, and this is what Paul's going to come to now in the, in, for the rest of the chapter primarily, it is, and I'm, I've got to look at the screen for this because I don't want to put my hands outside the screen. Adam and Christ are polar opposites of each other in many ways. They are, a, there is a contrast correlation. So when, when Paul recognized that Adam did this, caused this, and Jesus came, he's on the complete other end of the spectrum. If Adam brought death, Jesus brought life. If Adam brought judgment, Jesus brought uh, justification. And 
he sees them completely standing opposite each other. And in that way, he's a figure. He's almost an antitype, if you want to use that term. Now, verse number 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. It's, it's a strange way to word it. But I, I think what he's getting at is we can see the comparison by contrasting them, through, by looking at them as polar opposites. So in verse number 15, the one thing they share in common is that both men affected the entire world. Look at verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So Adam messed up and affected many. Jesus came and did something right and affected many. So the, the similarity that they have in verse 15 is the, the audience. Who did they affect? They affected many. It, in many, in this case, all. It, it touches everybody's life. But you'll see why in a, in a few verses, why he says many. But there's, there's the similarity. They affected all. What's the difference? How they affected all. Right? Adam brought death. Jesus, on the other hand, brought grace. Now, verse 16. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Now the similarity they have is that they're making or is that there is an effect. There's, a, there's an effect that goes out on everybody. So verse 15 is more the audience, who is being affected? Many. And now how did he affect them? It says, for Adam, he brought judgment to condemnation. Judgment and punishment. So look what he brought upon us. What a horrible effect. He brought the sinful nature into the world which leads to death, which leads to judgment, which leads to punishment. But what did Jesus bring? Well, it's almost, you can just turn the coin over. Let's make Jesus' head, Jesus' heads, Adam's tails. You can just flip the coin over. Jesus comes in verse 16, the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So Adam comes and says, here's how you sin. Jesus comes and says, here's how you can be forgiven for all of it. Here's how you can be made right. Adam makes us wrong. Jesus makes us right. So the effect. They both have an effect, but the effect, polar opposites. Verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So now we're, the, the, the commonality is there is an authority structure that is placed in our lives because of these men. In Adam's case, he made it so that death reigns over us. But then in Jesus' case, he made it so that righteousness and life reigns over us. So Paul sees that these men, the effect they've had and what they've brought, these authority structures into our life, polar opposites, complete opposites. Notice the emphasis Paul is putting on the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, the gift. Now make note of that because a gift 
has to be received. And here's where Adam and Jesus are different. Adam's offense led to many people being sinners, but not because they all chose it. We receive that sinful nature just through human birth. We do have a choice of whether or not we use it, but sin is so powerful that it does deceive us and we end up following sin's lead. We end up having death reigning over us and ruling us. But Jesus comes and offers a gift, and there's where the difference comes in. In verse 18, you'll see it here especially. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So Adam messed up and brought everybody into judgment. Jesus came and did everything right and gave everybody a chance to be forgiven. Now, notice that at the end of verse 17, there's the end parentheses. So starting in verse 13 to 17, that's a parenthetical statement. Paul has emphasized and clarified a point that he was making about death and sin. And now verse 18, it might sound like he's repeating because he is a little bit. He's taking all this parenthetical information and he's just summarizing it. Now, in the case of Adam, it's passed on. Like I said, we don't have a choice. In the case of Jesus, it is a gift. It comes upon all men unto justification of life if they receive the gift. So again, the contrast is there in what is being offered. The similarity is there in that they affect everybody. Now, Jesus... He offers it to everybody. So the effect is still there. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now, do you see how the word many is used? Many, everybody's a sinner. But Paul refers to it as many because, verse, at the end of verse 19, So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. For the sake of this contrast or this comparison through contrast. Paul chooses rather to say many because not everybody gets saved. But many will be made righteous. Everybody that does receive Christ is made righteous because of what Jesus did. So the, the, I think the use of the word many here is a smarter choice. Um, if you want to just make a note of it, Matthew chapter 20, let me Make sure I'm giving you the right verse. Uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. As far as the, the word many, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, Jesus died for all, right? That, and that's clear from many other places. But many does fall under the heading of all. All is many. So, Romans 5 and verse 20. And now Paul's going to finish the chapter by taking a step back a little bit. In Romans 3 and Romans 4, Paul addressed what the law was not able to do and what the law was supposed to do. It, it, it cannot save, it cannot give life. We've learned that in Galatians as well. But the law, in chapter 4, Paul says the law works wrath. In chapter 3, he says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So now he's, he's revisiting that point a little bit in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now remember, back in verse 14, from Adam to Moses. So he's dealt with that time period and how sin 
was still in operation and death was there. Now he's going into the time after the law came. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. If you read it without any context, you would think God made more laws so that more sins could happen. right? God made up more rules so that more rules could be broken. That's not, obviously, that's not what God did. That's not the purpose of the law. By the laws, the knowledge of sin. Uh, let me see. I just uh, had an idea for good cross-reference to that. The verse is escaping me. Sin that it might appear sin. I think it's in chapter 7. You know what? We'll get to it soon enough. I'm almost sure it's in... There it is. Yeah, yeah. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? See? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So sin that it might appear sinful. There, there's another verse down there that says that. Sin that it might appear... Aha, verse 13. I'm so sorry. Romans 7, verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? That's speaking about the law. God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. So the law is good. It, nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. So back to chapter 5 and verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound. Not in that so that we could sin more, but so that we could see, we could see how sinful we are. I, the thought that came to my mind is a, is a short guy walking around talking about how tall he is. You know, man, look at how big I am. I'm so tall. And you say, listen, stop, buddy. Hang on. And then you get a really tall guy. You know, here's this guy, 1.2 meters. Yeah, I'm tall. Look at me. I'm so tall. And then you get a guy like 2.5, you know. <laughs> you say, come here, stand next to this guy. And then that little guy looks up at him and says, oh, that's tall. So part of the law coming in, people might think, yeah, I'm, I'm a decent guy. But when you measure them next to the law, they realize, wow, okay, I thought I was decent. But sure, now that you show me what God really expects... Oh, my, my standards are way too low. Turns out I've done a lot more sinning than I was aware of. All right, so he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, God never intended for things to stop with the law. He didn't send the law and say, See how bad you are? You're horrible. Full stop. No, no, no. He sent the law, see how bad you are, and then grace comes in after that and says, now, even though you're so messed up, I can fix it. And grace did much more abound. No matter how much you've messed up, the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse you from all sin. And then the chapter concludes, verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So he finishes with the idea of this comparison again, the comparing the two natures now. Sin hath reigned unto death. When you, when you were a slave to your sin and you did what your, the lust of your flesh, you fulfilled those desires just over and over again. You know what it worked in you? 
you, you thought, I'm getting what I want, I'm getting what I want. And sin will, it's, it's deceitful. It will tell you, if you just scratch this itch, you'll feel so much better. And then you finally get everything you want and you, you realize, man, this isn't what life's all about. There's pleasure in sin, but only for a season. It deceives you. And it makes you think that if I get everything I want, then I'll be satisfied. No, you won't. You'll still have this emptiness, this void that only God can fill because real life is God. So sin, it reigns unto death. That's all that it can bring forth. Anybody that keeps obeying sin, they are just going to feel this emptiness and this deadness. And then ultimately, right, there is the second death. There's, there's physical death and then there's the second death. So sin, that's all that you have to look forward to. Deadness, physical death, a deadness in your heart, a physical death, and then that, that soulish death where your soul is cast into the lake of fire. Then it says in verse 21 in the middle, Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto life eternal. So grace now reign. I am under that system. Grace is ruling. God treating me better than I deserve. Guiding me when I don't deserve guidance. That is made possible through righteousness. Why is it that God would do this in me, work in me? and continually work in me until the day of Jesus Christ because I have been made right. I have been justified. So grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life, not just so that I can get to heaven, but I have this sense, this satisfied feeling that I am actually living. I am enjoying that abundant life because of what Jesus has done. The attendance code for Sunday night's Romans class in chapter 5 is Genesis 6, verse 8. All right, we're going to stop there at the end of the chapter. And I have kept my notes handy, so I'm not going to forget to tell you what will be on the exam. Romans chapter chapters 1 through 5 is what the exam is going to cover. So let me read these quickly. And please feel free, uh, I'll take a chance here while I'm reading the questions if you have a question, if you want to be, uh, what can I say, adventurous and try to write it in the comment section, maybe I can answer it before the video is done. But as always, if you do have a question, please feel free. And some of you have. You've written me on WhatsApp or you can send me an email. I'll be happy to try to answer any questions that you have. All right, for your exam, here are the questions. Number one, what event proved that Jesus was perfectly holy. Number two, from where did the depraved behavior of the Gentiles arise? You'll need to give me a, a short explanation on that. Number three, can a man who has no access to the written law still die in his sin and be punished? I'll give you a hint on this, where to look. Can he still perish? You'll find the answer to this in chapter 2. But this is a yes or no question. Number four, true or false? When a sinner receives Christ, he becomes a spiritual Jew. Number five, what is the chief advantage the Jews had compared to Gentiles? You'll find that at the beginning of chapter three. Number six, give one verse from chapter three which shows that the righteousness of God was not available to the people who lived before Christ. Now, after you give the verse, because there are a couple acceptable answers there, 
I ask you to explain why you chose that verse. So whichever verse you choose, you'll need to briefly explain why that verse supports the idea that the righteousness of God was not available, let's say, in the Old Testament. Number seven, what is counted for righteousness according to Romans 4 verse 5? That should be an easy one. Number eight, list one advantage that grace has over the law. Guys, I'd like for you to use something biblical. This needs to be from a verse. There's lots of advantages that you might be able to mention. Tell me one that Paul has mentioned in the book of Romans. Number nine, what allowed Abraham's faith to be so strong? Number ten, what are the four steps of the rejoicing process Paul explained in chapter five? So I I gave you an equation. This plus this plus this equals this. Those are the four parts, four steps. And then number 11, it's a fill in the blanks. It's not a verse, but it is based on Romans 5 verse 21. It's based off of that. Sin reigns unto what? But grace reigns through what unto what what? There's two blanks. And then you have one memory verse. That's Romans 5 and verse 12. All right. Uh, no comments came in. I'm sorry for the shaking. No, no comments came in for questions, so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll close it down for tonight. Thank you for tuning in, guys. Father, thank you this evening for speaking to our hearts. Through your scripture, thank you for the tremendous love you have towards us and for showing us just how much you love us. Lord, thank you for the privilege of having grace reigning in our hearts, of being under that system. Lord, thank you for fixing what Adam messed up and what we have, we have perpetuated the cycle. God, thank you for fixing us. When nothing else could, you did. Thank you for it. Help us to do something with it, Lord. Help us not to abuse our standing, but use it rather and be profitable servants unto you. Thank you for this day. What a good day it's been. And I pray you'd have your hand upon each family. Lord, that's been listening now and this church, God, have your hand upon us. Get us through this difficult time, this chaotic time, Lord. We turn to you for stability and for hope, and we trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, have a wonderful evening. Take care.